Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host and I have a fantastic lady joining us today from Los Angeles. Her name is Nikki Bruno, so stay with us. This is going to be fun. And we are back. Let's bring Nikki into the stream. Nikki, welcome. Good morning. Hello, or whatever time zone we're all in. It's so good to see you. Morning. It's still morning here. It's morning here too. (laughs) Much earlier. My buddy Jose, he's out in California. I think, right, Jose? I think he's in California. Thank you for sharing. So, Nikki, I created this show about two and a half years ago. And it was literally a selfish reason. (laughs) I mean, I think a little bit. I I wanted to hear how other people got unstuck and I was gone through some stuff. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's been, um, man, what a gift and a blessing it's been to hear so many people's stories. And so that's, that's what it's all about is your story and, and helping people that are, going to watch this or listen to it, help them get through stuff they may be going through. So let's start with where you were born and raised. Let's do it. It's a little bit, it's a little bit complex. The answer, I was born in Connecticut. I was born in Norwalk, Connecticut, and I was a year old. My family, we moved around because my dad was a, he was a public school superintendent and it's kind of a political role. Um, And so superintendents tend not to last too, too long, especially if education is their top priority. Um, So (laughs) we moved before I was a year old to Wellesley, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. And then after five years there, we moved to Ithaca, New York, which was a wonderful, wonderful place to grow up. I really consider myself to be from Ithaca. And then we moved again and I went to high school in Connecticut. Um, so that's that's where I was born and raised in the Northeast. So a lot closer to me than it is to you right now. Exactly. Yeah. Being in LA and I've only lived here for a year. So I am, I still see palm trees and my heart skips a beat. It's, it's like, it's like living (laughs) in tropical paradise compared to, uh, compared to Massachusetts. I was, I moved to LA from Boston where I was uh, for 17 years before this. Not many palm trees in Boston. Not a one and no lizards. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's lizards in LA. Tons of them. They're everywhere. They're like oh. they're like squirrels. Yeah. Wow. What in the world took you to LA from Boston? I mean, that's literally the opposite side of the country. <laughs> it totally is. It you know, life is really, really weird, as I know you already know from your own yeah. life in this podcast. But um, the reason that I live in Los Angeles is that my ex-husband, he is newly remarried. And a year and a half ago, he gave me a call and he said, I got some changes happening in my life. And I said, okay, do tell. And he said that he was about to propose to his uh, now wife and that Mm -hmm. she had 
was about to have a job offer on her lap, uh, an incredible uh, career changing, career making job offer. And so I thought about it for a week. Actually, I didn't really think about it. I, I talked to my gut. I talked to my intuition because my yeah. ex-husband and I have two children who are now eight and five. Oh, and got it. There we go. So I talked to my gut. I said, give me a minute. And I took a minute and my gut to my shock said, move to LA, move to LA. And wow. so I, and I've, I've learned, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I've learned to follow my gut. And wow. it was absolutely the best decision for our children because we shared custody 50, yeah. 50, right down the middle. And yeah. at that time, you know, like I said, right now they're, they're five and eight and a year yeah. ago they were four and seven. So yeah. they were used to having quality time with both of us. And I was not at the time uh, involved in a relationship or anything back in Boston. And I do my work remotely. I do my work from anywhere. So I decided that the kids and I would move too. And I never in a million years thought that I would live in Los Angeles. I knew wow. nothing about it other than kind of mostly the negative stereotypes that you hear when you grow up yeah. outside of it. And it's the kind of place that everyone has some access to because yeah. we're, because of the media and because of film and TV. So we kind yeah. of feel like we have some access to it, but don't actually know it if we haven't been there. So yeah. I dropped in LA for the first time a year ago, found a place to live and here I am. That's awesome. That is awesome. I know uh, I've been there one time when I lived in Vegas, we lived in Vegas and, um, I was out in, um, I don't, I, I told my wife, I'm like, well, I've never been to LA and she's been there many times. And I'm like, we were at big bear Lake. If you get a chance, have you been to big, big bear Lake? I haven't, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. Go like, go. It's, uh, I just yeah. like, I, it, it's amazing. And I'm so there. we drove, from Big Bear Lake over to LA and drove down to the Santa Monica Pier. And and that was a bit of a freak show. Had our had our daughter with us. <laughs> it was a little interesting. Um, but we went all the way out to the end of the pier and had dinner at, at the I think it's a Mexican restaurant out there. And and that was great. And and then left. <laughs> and that was so that was my experience in LA. But um Anyway, like it's, it's, let's back up. So you, you went to school in Connecticut, you said. I went to high school in Connecticut. High I school. attended the, the, the public school, the public okay. high school that my dad, of which my dad was the superintendent. Um, I always attended the public, the public schools wherever we lived. Yeah. And um, I was an academic overachiever. I was what a lot of people would call a golden girl. Um, I, I come from a highly educated family. Um, and so I was very interested in graduating at the top of my class and wow. I, I'm a lifelong learner. I was, I was like built to go to school. So I graduated at the top of my class and I headed off to Princeton university. So college was in New Jersey. You went to Princeton. I sure did. I loved every minute of it. Wow. I don't know if you're the first Ivy Leaguer I've had on the show, but no way. We're I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I, I may. I don't know. I don't remember anybody saying they went to Princeton. Actually, I think I've had a couple of Harvard people on. So, um, 
kind of in the same realm of I, Ivy League I schools. Say. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. So, so you went to, uh, where's your accent? I don't hear an accent at all. My parents are from the Midwest. So my mom is from Michigan. My dad is from Chicago. And I have oh. the most, I, I mean, I guess I would call it neutral American accent that you could possibly have. So I don't have, I don't have the Boston. I certainly don't have New Jersey. I was 18 by the time I moved there. So I just have kind of neutral American elocution. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you, so what did you end up studying at Princeton? I studied cultural anthropology. And it was the best major that I could have picked for myself. And I did not become an anthropologist. That? What is that? Cultural anthropology? That's right. I can't even hardly say that. What is that? <laughs> it, it's the study of human cultures. It's basically the study of how different groups of people deal with being human. It's the study of human humanity, really. What we as a species do to create culture. Um, and, and we, and so you, what you study in anthropology is you choose sort of a cultural, a culture or more than one to study perhaps alongside each other. And you're looking at human systems. So systems of economics, systems of kinship, systems of, um, right. Like kinship, like family relationships, dating, marriage, things like that. Um, systems of, like I said, economics, commerce, as well as any other kind of cultural aspect, even law. I took a course called the Anthropology of Law. And it's fascinating to look at different cultures and how they approach sort of um, controlling, creating rules and laws for society and enforcing them. It's a fascinating topic. And I was going to study public policy and be in international affairs. And then I, I looked at the course catalog and I saw this entire discipline called anthropology that I had never heard of. And to me, that was like candy. Looking at the course catalog was like candy because I'm a learner. I'm a, I'm a voracious learner and reader. So I saw anthropology and I was like, I'm going to take anthro 101. And I did. And that was it. I was like, this is my jam. This is wow. what I'm going to do. That is like, I, I don't, and again, I'm not trying to stereotype, but there's this, there's this thing I have in my head. That's like, if you're going to Princeton or, or Harvard or like, it's already pre-planned what you're going to like. And you're like, no, I went in and said, okay, here I am at Princeton and I'm going to study this. That's, that's, there was nothing pre-planned. There was nothing pre-planned. I mean, when I went to graduate school and I did go to, I went to the Harvard graduate school of education um, and when, when I went there, it was very planned. By that time I had already worked. I had been in the workforce for five years and I knew exactly what I wanted from my graduate degree. So I was much more laser focused when I entered, uh, when I entered that program. And that was a year long program to get my master's degree in teaching and curriculum. And also to get my, my teaching credential to, uh, to teach in public schools, English, high school, English. Wow. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I mean, I, you know, Ivy League through and through multiple folks in my, in my family, both my parents graduated with degrees from the, the Harvard School of Education. Um, and so I really, I'm one of those people who, like, I had a wonderful childhood. My parents stayed together. They're still married. They celebrated their 50th maybe two years ago. And um, both of my parents, and I, I consider my greatest privilege and I think any human being's greatest privilege to have parents or caregiver caregivers as you're growing up 
who love you unconditionally. Both of my mm. parents loved me unconditionally. Both of my parents brought me up telling me I could do anything that I wanted. So I had a very empowering childhood. In addition to being white, in addition to being um, you know, upper middle class and being economically privileged, I was educationally privileged. I mean, I, you know, I, I had I had everything going for me. Uh, wow. with the with the possible exception of being a woman and a girl, but that didn't that didn't stop me. I, I can't, you know, it's not something that I <clears throat> that I ever use as a crutch, although I am highly dedicated to to the the betterment of women's situation and status globally. But as a kid, the world was really my oyster. So wow. I didn't come up speaking of walls, I didn't come up against too, too many walls as a kid. I did definitely didn't have a perfect upbringing. But um, it was, wow. it was my childhood was enviable, definitely. So you have a, <clears throat> you have a master's degree from Princeton as well. Um, I have an undergraduate degree, a BA from Princeton, and a master's degree from Harvard. Oh, oh I missed the Harvard part. I thought you said Princeton. I'm sorry. Oh, it's, all good. it's all good. So, it's wow. So you have a, you have a master's degree from Harvard. Um, what stopped you from getting a PhD? <laughs> Time, money, and yeah. And I was I was on a mission, and and the mission that I was on did not require a PhD. Yeah. What it's is, a huge what is that mission? What's the mission? So the mission that I was on when I went to graduate school was to, to study education at large because I knew that my entire career was going to be under the umbrella of education and it already had been. So when I started out in the workforce after graduating from uh, with my undergraduate degree, I worked for a couple of very, very small nonprofits that involved youth, that involved um students between grades maybe three up through 12. And after that, I entered the publishing industry and became a book editor. Um, and I worked for Scholastic, which of course is educational publishing. And I was working on nonfiction books as an editor. And then I kind of, I kind of stopped my, I, I stopped. <laughs> and I said, if education is going to be my career, my, my career at large, and I'm going to be working on education in educational publishing or at whatever, I really need in order to be in order to be authentic and really good at what I do, I need to be in the classroom, I need to be a teacher. And I have that teacher personality, I have that teacher and leadership personality. Um, right now I'm, I'm a, a life coach, I'm an empowerment coach. And so I decided that it was really important for me to be in the classroom. So when I was getting my graduate degree, my mission was to become a teacher, to become an excellent teacher of English. And I became a teacher. And this was actually one of my first walls, uh, which was that I, I graduated. I had my master's in my teaching credential and I started working as a high school English teacher in the Boston area. And I, I imploded. I came up against a wall. Was was this was this in the public school system? Yes. I, I'm just curious because, I, I, and again, if I seem like I'm making it extreme, I don't mean to. This is literal ignorance. I didn't go to college, um, so Princeton and Harvard are are like two of the least expensive schools in the world <laughs> to attend, right? No, I'm right. kidding. But like they, they, they seem like they would be somewhat expensive schools to attend. 
Intensely, uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and to get a, a degree to go into public school system teaching, my brother-in-law and his wife, my wife's brother and his wife are both teachers in the public school systems. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> they're not multimillionaires. Um I know that the, I know that teachers are extremely underpaid in this country. Yes. So how do you justify getting an undergrad from Princeton and a master's degree from Harvard to go into public school teaching? Where does the financial justification come in? I'm sorry. I don't see the ROI here. I'm a businessman. I'm always like, okay, what's the ROI? So how do you justify that? The ROI is not financial. The ROI of teaching is not financial. I get that. I, yeah. I, 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 I get it. But it's, you could, could have gone to community college and gotten a degree for a lot less money. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not about, right, it's not about financial ROI. I mean, I can, right. I, I was, as I said, I was very privileged. I was economically privileged. Um, oh, my wow. grandfather, who was a, he was a chemist at Dow. And oh, he, wow. he, he created some, he had some patents and he had, um, he had amassed some money and he put aside a lot of that money to help his grandchildren of which he had 14 to go through school. So when I went to Princeton, my parents paid for the majority of it and they had, oh, wow. they had been good with their money. Um, they awesome. both, they both worked outside the home yeah. and in, in education, but there are some positions in education where you can make some money, for example, as, as a school superintendent right, and right. they, they saved up. They, I did not have to, we we had no we had no loans. I my my parents and my grandfather paid for my education at Princeton, and then when I and then when I went to get my master's degree, I took out school loans and um and I paid for it, yeah. and I'm still paying for it. And that was in 2002 2003, and yeah. so honestly, Ken, that was part of the block, part of the wall that came up for me as a teacher, which was that I had already started kind of working my way up the ladder as an editor, as a book editor, and that's not, I mean, that's not really a um, highly lucrative profession either, right. but um, I, I had to take a significant pay cut to become a teacher. Gotcha. And although that wasn't the primary reason that I left teaching, it was, it was definitely a reason because I had certain lifestyle and, you know, in the future family goals. I mean, I, at the time that I left teaching, I wasn't married. I was completely single, but I knew that I knew that I wanted to have children and I knew that I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to have a certain lifestyle and, and not to be poor, frankly. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so that was part of the wall, but, but really it was that um, I, I discovered around the time that I became a teacher that it's a profession where if you really care and you really care about doing a good job and you really care about your students, especially when you become a teacher, it is extraordinarily difficult. And part of what's difficult is that for me, I was either working all the time or when at the moments that I wasn't working, I was anxious because I wasn't working. And part of that was because I was a first year teacher and all first year teachers go through that. But part of, but I also got a really good glimpse into what my, into what, how my time was going to be spent and how my quote unquote vacations were going to be spent grading right. 150 essays, you know? 
So, um, and I was also in a situation where I had almost no curriculum, like basically no curriculum support. My curriculum support was here's the key to the book room that in most of the books were already taken up by the veteran teachers. And I was, I was dealt with threats of you better not take this group of books because, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is the one who always teaches that in the fall and stuff like that. Um, and the other thing that happened to me is that I, I didn't know this at the time, but um, I was starting to deal with, I have a, a history, personal and family of depression and anxiety. And I got to a place by the middle of my first year of teaching where um, the all day performance and inventing curriculum in the morning that I was gonna be teaching in the afternoon and having parents who were, who were undercutting my decisions about grades and, and a school, an administrator who wouldn't support me. And there, there just, there was a lot happening that caused me to kind of enter a, enter a crisis. And I ended up leaving my teaching job and I was unemployed for maybe six months. And I went running, screaming back to the world of educational publishing and started working wow. at Prentice Hall. Yeah, wow. so most of my career has been in in book publishing. Wow. Um, I worked for Prentice Hall for a couple of years, and then I got married and went on a very, very long honeymoon and came back and I started my own business, my own editorial services business, which is what I did for the next um, 11 years full time. What's a very, very long honeymoon? Nine months. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you do anything that's not extreme? That's no. extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Nine month honeymoon? That's right. That's right. <laughs> we put all our stuff in storage. And at the time we were living in Boston. Um, I met my husband in Boston. That's where Prentice Hall is located and, and where I had gone to graduate school. And uh, we put everything in storage and we took off and we traveled for nine months all over the world. Um, we... My um, my now former husband is an avid scuba scuba diver, and one of the conditions of marriage was that I had to get certified as a scuba diver. And it, wow. as it turned out, it it became a pastime that is is really the coolest thing I have ever done. Like to me, scuba diving is just as cool as going into space because humans aren't supposed to be down there. And what what I have witnessed around the world scuba diving has been just like cataclysmically amazing, absolutely amazing. So we basically traipsed around the globe backpacking on, I think it was, it was either $60 a day or $80 a day. So this was not luxury travel. People think that when you travel for a long period of time, you must be independently wealthy. That's not true. Right. Think about it. We had no bills. We didn't own a home. We didn't own anything. We had no utility bills. All we were doing was paying for storage. Wow. And so all the, all the money and the budget that we had was going to flights and basically scuba diving. Wow. For yeah. nine months. For nine months. For nine months. And then you were like, okay, we better go get a job or something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when we decided to go on a, on a nine-month honeymoon, so both of us were working at Prentice Hall. That's how we met. And we we each took on freelance work above and beyond our full-time jobs at Prentice Hall. So we were saving, we were putting money away for that purpose. And we also were prioritizing our, the money that our parents gave us, for example, for our wedding. And, yeah. and we decided that instead of having a, a lavish wedding, I think we spent, I think we spent 
20 grand total. Uh, no, not 20 grand. No, it was, it was less than that. It was significantly less than that. Anyway, we, we were cognizant of how we, of how we wanted to spend our money. Wow. My wife's on here. I think she likes the, the honeymoon idea. Says, yeah. Oh, it was, we were all over the place. We were in the middle East. We were in the South Pacific. We were, wow. we were all over the place hiking and diving basically. That's so cool. Yeah. So, so you, you went on your nine month honeymoon and, um, at some point the honeymoon always has to come to an end. <laughs> so, that's actually a metaphor too. Right. But, but so, so you went on this honeymoon and, um, you came back to Boston. Is that right? We did. We came right back to Boston and okay. we um, spent another, another couple of years working and then and we we had a blast in Boston. Uh, really good friends, lots of lots of just dinner parties and fun, and, and driving up north to New Hampshire to hike almost every weekend in the summer. We just had a a, a lot a wonderful wonderful life there. And I got to a place after a couple more years working where I started getting two itches, and the first itch was the family itch, and I was ready to start a family. I was getting excited about, about having children. And, and at the same time, I also had the travel itch again. And so my husband and I had a summit and I said, okay, here's, here's the plan. We're going to travel for a year and then we're going to come back to Boston and we're going to start having a family. And he was like, okay, where do I sign up? Awesome. Great. Wow. So we took, we took 2010 off again, we had been renting. We put all our stuff in storage and we took off again for 2010. <laughs> hey, I rhymed. So we traveled wow. more, dived a lot more reefs, hiked up mountains in New Zealand and Indonesia and uh, just, my gosh, everywhere. We had a path. Let, let me ask you this. So yeah. did anybody say, hey, you guys are... <laughs> You guys are being irresponsible. I'm, no. I'm, I'm kidding, but like, did did it ever like like I can I can just hear voices from people in my life going, "You're doing what?" Like, we're going hiking for a year. Deal well, this comes it. back, you know, Ken. This really comes back to my my like my lens is my intellectual lens is, is anthropological. This comes back to culture because there are entire nations, multiple entire nations other than the United States where yeah. attitudes toward travel are extraordinarily different. If you're yeah. from Australia, if you're from basically anywhere in Europe, multiple countries in Europe, if you're from New Zealand, if you're from, um, yeah, lots of different countries, it's normal for people to take a year to have a walkabout. It's normal for people to backpack around the world for a year or two or more. Yeah. And so the culture of travel in the United States is very different. Americans, like some ridiculously pathetically low percentage of Americans actually own a passport. Yeah. And so we're just not a culture that really we're, we're kind of we have this kind of isolationist um, legacy and I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. It's just true. It's just right. true. So uh, yeah. 
travel doesn't have to involve extreme privilege. It really, really doesn't. And yeah. it's the kind of thing that's almost embedded into other societies, especially Australia. Like it's expected that when you graduate from, from high school, you're gonna go, you're gonna go see the world. Many European countries, same thing. So just to provide some perspective on that, our our families were saying, we're like everyone that we knew was drooling. They were like, we want to be able to do that. And and more power to you. So there was no, there were no head shakers. And the other thing is we were completely responsible financially too, because at the same time, again, we were prioritizing how we were making and spending our money. And right. we did not empty the coffers by traveling in 2010. And also keep in mind that I had an editorial services business. I was editing manuscripts while we went along here and there. So uh. I, remember, I remember we were in Nicaragua and I was editing a manuscript. Um, I was editing, I think it was from, you know, from National Geographic, which was one of my clients. So we just mm. made it happen on our own. We were completely yeah. autonomous. So nobody had any, nobody could question us really. Right. You had a $50 a month storage bill. <laughs> or whatever right. and that's exactly. it exactly and that's what you incredible. learn and what you gain and what you experience i mean i put on my resume that i've been to 60 countries because it wow. it communicates 60. A, yeah wow yeah that's incredible that's so I've, cool I've been i have a friend that you need to meet and he'll want you on his show his name is ollie nold and he is the founder of nomad x Cool. Which is huge. I mean, they have like eleven thousand members in this this community. Mm -hmm. Of that's what they do. They travel like everywhere and yeah. and just work from laptops. And it's it's insane. I've been on his podcast. I need to introduce you guys. But anyway, so I digress. So so you you eventually you come back to Boston. And yep. um, you decide to have children. Once you decide to have children, it's much more difficult to to climb mountains and scuba dive with a an infant strapped to you. <laughs> well, right? just just oh, oh cotton picking minute, <laughs> just one cotton picking minute. So <laughs> we get we get back to Boston. It's 2011. Um, our son was born in 2012. I think it took me a good, I don't know, six to eight months to get pregnant. Yeah. And our son was born in 2012 and our daughter was born in 2015. And I think my son has probably been to, I, I don't know what the recent count is, but he's been to somewhere between 10 and 16 countries. So we continued to travel. Wow. We, we took our infant son Cairo to Guatemala and we took him to Japan and my husband and I climbed Mount Fuji with an 18 month old it on our backpack. Wow. <laughs> you know, everybody says when you have kids, you can't travel. It's bull crap. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but I'm not going to swear, but it's baloney. It's absolute baloney. It's absolute baloney. And there are many reasons that people come up with not to, but there are also a lot of good bullshit. What's that? Were you going to say bullshit? I was going to say bullshit. Yes. <laughs> you can um, say that. Yeah. Poppycock, balderdash, all those things. <laughs> um, you can totally travel with your children and anything, any reason you come up with not to, again, I don't judge. And yes, there are, yes, it's a, it's, 
it's harder. Sure. It's yeah. harder. And yet we continued to prioritize travel. Um, and yes, it definitely became harder. And I will say that the last couple of big trips that we went on, Japan, and then we went on a trip with both kids when when our daughter was eight months old. And that was, um, I think it was a five-week trip to Spain and Morocco. And actually, it was on that trip that I decided to file for divorce. And the divorce wow. really didn't have anything to do with travel. But the fact that by that time I had become miserable in my marriage made traveling with two young children, you know, under five, pretty excruciating because by that point, um, my dynamic with my husband was highly compromised. So this is, I mean, we're, we're getting to the big wall here, Ken, <laughs> you yeah. know, like we're yeah. getting, to the big, we're getting to the big wall. So, and you were where, and when you decided, um, Spain, Spain. Okay. Yeah. I was literally um, sitting on a toilet in Spain in a bathroom of a cafe in a city in beautiful city in Southern Spain. I think it was Cordoba. And that was when I made the decision. That was when I decided um, not only is our marriage over and destroyed, but I'm, 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 I'm going to, we're going to have a divorce. We're going to, we're going to legally end our marriage. And was he aware of this? He was not. He wasn't aware of this, uh, that I was making that decision at that moment. We had we had been struggling. We went into therapy. And I, I mean, in, in front of him and the therapist, I said that our marriage was in crisis. And there, things had been going downhill. And we both knew it. But I was apparently much more sort of advanced in my thinking and in the logistics of it than he was. And when we got back from Spain and Morocco, it was, I think, about nine days later. This was 2015, uh, fall 2015. And it was maybe nine days after we returned from that trip that I told my husband that I wanted a divorce. Wow. And we, um, we then, the wall got really high. <laughs> He did not want a divorce. He was 3000% yeah. against it. And to me, the divorce sort of emotionally, the, the emotional part of it had kind of, not that the divorce had already happened, but in my mind and in my heart and in my gut and in my soul, our marriage was already over. It was already over. It wow. had, our marriage had become toxic for me. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of fighting and some of, some of, some really unfortunate um, things were starting to happen in front of our children. And I was like, nope, I am not raising a daughter. I'm not raising a son under these yeah. circumstances. We had tried therapy. Therapy did not work well. And, um, and it, it, it got to a place where it was unsustainable. And so we went through a three-year-long high-conflict divorce. Um, it was litigated. It did wow. not go to trial. So we ended up settling, which... Thank, thank goodness. And, and that was, that was my big wall. It was a traumatic experience. Our children, as I mentioned, were very young when the, when the process began, our daughter was eight months old and our son was three and I was the one who moved out and, um, and I was, it, it just, it almost broke me. The, 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 the whole process 
almost broke me. And I'm talking emotionally, I'm talking, um, you know, financially, it was certainly no good and continues to be no good. I mean, I'm still, I'm still dealing with financial fallout, definitely. And um, I lost some friends. Um, It was, and I became a single mom. I mean, it, it was, there, there's no really, there's no way to sort of, to sort of exaggerate the crappiness of loss when you go through a high conflict divorce. And I don't care what people say, divorce is painful no matter what, no matter what universally it's painful, unless you just went to Vegas and you were married for three days and you're like, ha ha ha, now we're gonna get our divorce. And then maybe it's even like almost funny. Yeah. But pretty much universally divorce is, is hard and it's painful, but and I will how long, how, how long had you been married? We had been married for nine years. Nine years. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, it, there are hard, there are harder and easier divorces and there are more and less, um, destructive divorces for sure. Yeah. And when I got to the other side, meaning we separated and we started kind of making progress with the divorce and, and agreeing to more and more things, um, I moved out and created a new home for my children and me. And again, this is all still in Boston. And I took about nine months, Ken, to to suck my thumb, basically. I mean, certainly, I already mentioned that I have a history of depression and anxiety. And during, during much of this time, I was, I mean, I was surviving. I was taking care of my children half the time. And I... I functioned and I continued to be a good mother. And I'm very proud to be able to say that I, I kept, I kept things afloat during that time. Right. I also, I also was depressed. I was anxious. I was definitely relying on support from my therapist, from my parents, my parents who lived in New Hampshire, they kept coming to Boston and staying with me and supporting me and just holding me when I was sobbing. I mean, and so once I kind of, once I, once we separated and I had a new home and a new space, I spent about nine months just healing, recovering, having as mundane a day-to-day life as possible. I just wanted life to be boring. I wanted to take my kids to school. I wanted to come home. I wanted to cook them dinner. I wanted to edit my manuscripts, do my work. Um, and that's what I did. And I, I didn't work out for like three years. I ate comfort food. I gained about 30 pounds. And at one point, I like about nine months after we separated, after I had put kind of back into place the main puzzle pieces of my life, making sure kids are squared away, I'm squared away, and I'm breathing. <laughs> yeah. After that, I had this moment where I looked in the mirror and I said to myself, Bruno, this isn't funny anymore. And that was when I decided that I was no longer going to think of myself at all as a victim. I was an adult when I married this man. I was an adult when I decided to have children and I was an adult when I decided to, to file for divorce. And so that was the moment when I decided to stage an epic comeback. So I worked with an elementary school friend of mine who had become a fitness coach And I said, suck it to me, Molly. (laughs) And she gave me 
a workout program, a nutrition program. I followed them to the letter. I got into the best shape of my life. I was doing at-home workouts because here I am a single mom. I don't like I running my own business. I don't really have time to go to the gym, et cetera. So I was doing at-home workout videos and got into incredible shape. My energy level shot up. Depression was a total thing of the past because what I've learned that when I'm in shape, I do not like I am I am the happiest. I'm the happiest mofo you've ever met. Yeah. And so, um, and the other thing, the other decision that I made, by this time I had decided to make a career change and to go from publishing to become um, a coach, a professional coach. So right around, actually the year that I filed for divorce was also the year that I started going to coaching school and learning how to be a professional coach. And my intention had been to be a leadership and executive coach. But when I decided to stage an epic comeback, everything became, I hired my own coach, my own business yeah. coach, um, Mark Cordone, who's an, an incredible human being and an amazing coach. And um, I sat down with him for like, uh, at the beginning of our contract, we had this VIP day, which was like a five to six hours of coaching. Yeah. And during that time, I made, I made probably three to four pivotal decisions. And one of those was, I am not going to be a leadership and executive coach. I'm going to be an empowerment coach. I am going to help people to kick ass in their lives as I am just initiating doing and yeah. get the mojo back after going through a life shattering experience like what I have, have just been coming through. Wow. Because, and I decided that I was going to dedicate everything I have, my fancy education, my edu my uh, my professional experience, my teaching credential, my curriculum expertise in creating a coaching curriculum, my passion, and my extreme passion really is the word. My extreme belief and faith in the ability of human beings to come back stronger from trauma, and that was when I started my current business, which is called the Epic Comeback. I and love that. that was two years ago. And so I, I work with mostly women. I do work with men, but uh, my clients tend to be women. They tend to be attracted to working with me are women who are going through or coming out of and emerging from divorce, some kind of illness could be yeah. cancer, could be a really awful, you know, auto, autoimmune disease that has you laid out for, you know, three to five years um, or some kind of loss. So either the death of a loved one or um, loss of, um, you know, a, a miscarriage or infertility journey could be just any kind of loss or an injury, anything that basically sidelines you in the prime of your life, you know, generally my clients are between between 40 and 60 with some in their 30s. And we all we all have those things happen to us. And my clients tend to be women who are highly high achievers, successful, rock star women who were sidelined by something yeah. huge and just yeah. scattered the pieces of their lives. And what I've created based on not only my own experience, but also on qualitative study of hundreds of real life cases of comebacks. And I'm talking about athletic comebacks, professional comebacks. I studied Apple corporate comebacks, as well as spiritual, personal comebacks. 
And yeah. while I was geeking out and studying comebacks and, and people's real stories, I was asking two questions. One, what are the human qualities that it takes to go from a really low, low to a re- like the shitter to a yeah. really hot, you know, to be back on top in an even and, and leading an even better life than you had before the crisis? What human qualities does it take to do that? And then number two, what steps do you need to take? What what are people, what did people actually in organizations and teams, et cetera, what did they actually do when they were going through this process? And what I came out with is called the Epic Comeback Journey. It's my methodology. It's the, it's the intellectual property of my company. Wow. And it's freaking awesome. It's a 10, it's a 10 step, it's a 10 step model of, it's a pathway to what to do, what processes to go through to stage that epic comeback and to, to become, to become the architect of your own life. And wow. that's what I do now. And I pinch myself because it's the most amazing, amazing, amazing work. And it's absolutely aligned with my spiritual, personal, professional purpose. It's why I'm on the planet. You know, I think that you have, um, I wrote a book called Walls of Wisdom, Turning Pain into Profit. And, and, you know, one of the things I wrote about in the book was, was, you know, the predecessor of all wisdom actually isn't from a Harvard education, it's from pain. The predecessor of all wisdom is from pain. And that puts you in a unique um, position because you've, you've been through it. And right. And, and, and I know, you know, this I've, I've seen, um, nothing against youthful people trying to be coaches, but um, you know, I've seen some 22 year old kids out there that, that just because you have a loud mouth (laughs) and you (laughs) does, does not mean that you can, uh, but, but again, I, I think that, that, you know, I, if you haven't been through it, how do you help someone in that position? And, and it's, it's almost impossible. And, and I think that you are in a very, very unique position because you did it. You went through the pain, you made the changes, you went through the depression and the sadness and all of that. And then you were like, wait a minute. I can take this pain and turn it into not profit necessarily financially profit as far as helping the world, helping other people that are stuck in that. And I, mm-hmm. I love that. I all love of the that. above, all of the above. I have two children to put through college. I mean, absolutely like profit in every sense of the word. It's yeah. super, super important. And I also have one of the main reasons why I want to be why I want to amass wealth is, is that I want to have a major impact. And my mission now is I eventually intend to establish a foundation or other kind of nonprofit organization that increases awareness and uh, about emotional abuse specifically. And my, if I could leave one legacy, if I could, if I could die leaving one legacy and I could say that I helped to somehow increase awareness of and start to eradicate emotional abuse, yeah, which I went through, I, I would, I would die very happy. 
I would die knowing that I served my purpose on this planet. What is now, do you have, uh, I, this is somewhat of a rhetorical question. Do you have a website? I sure do. What is it? Website. It is the epic comeback.com. You own that? I sure do. That's awesome. And it's, and the, and the trademark is pending. Nobody, nobody ever recreated anything called the epic comeback. Gosh, that's so awesome. I love that. It is. It is. It's um, my, it, it's my baby. It's my company. It's my podcast. I have, I have a podcast that, you know, Ken, you're, you're going to be on very, very soon. Called the in epic a couple podcast. of hours. In a few hours. <laughs> I get to see Ken twice in one day. And wow. um, yeah, it's, it's, and what you were talking about, Ken, you and I do very, very similar work. I think we have a really almost the same yeah. philosophy yeah. and what you're talking about in terms of pain to profit, there's um, there's positive psychologists have coined a term called post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Now we have all heard of, of PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder, which yeah. is what happens to people who go through trauma and in the wake of that trauma, they experience um, all different kinds of awful, crappy symptoms like nightmares and flashbacks. And there are certain um, there are certain situations or words that tr that can trigger you after you've gone through some major trauma. So yeah. we think of PTSD as something that people suffer, um, like war war veterans suffer. You know, members of the military, um, people who go through sexual trauma, um, but. PTSD is something that is kind of, it's, it's, it's open to the population. It doesn't discriminate. And so when you go through trauma, it, it, that it can happen that you develop PTSD and PTG or post-traumatic growth is almost kind of the opposite of PTSD. So yeah. PTSD is the crap that you deal with in the wake of trauma. PTG is the, is the idea that trauma can be the springboard and actually the source of extreme personal growth of transformation, positive transformation of a deepening of your spirituality, a deepening of your connections with other human beings, because you've come through something so, so, so hard that now you've been introduced to more of the spectrum of human emotion that you can relate to people and be compassionate with people and connect with people on a much, much deeper level. This is this is the stuff that makes me a good coach. Yeah. The, the Ivy League degrees contribute, but they're not the secret sauce even close to being a good to being a good coach for my clients. Right. right. And so my entire philosophy is based on the concept of post-traumatic growth because what I say and and my kind of you've got um, you've got um, what was it? It's pain to profit. Yeah. My tagline is there's treasure in trauma. There is treasure in trauma. If you are open to it, if you look for it, if you decide to learn from what you've gone through rather than running from it scared, yeah. to find the treasure in trauma, you probably need some major help. You probably need help from a therapist, from a coach, from mentors, from a spiritual leader, someone you trust. Yeah. It, it's really difficult to travel, sort of travel the waters of trauma after you've gone through it without help from somebody who's there to very compassionately yeah. guide you and, and, and lead you. Um, you can do it on your own. I'm not saying you can't, but why do it on your own? Because 
we are human beings and we are hardwired to help each other, to support each other. So I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and, and respectfully disagree on one thing. Great, please. And that is you cannot do it on your own. Mm. It's almost impossible. Okay. And, I, and the, and, and I'm not saying for everything, but if it's something really traumatic, you've got to have somebody help you. Like there's got to be some sort of a, I say this based on my experience in recovery and, and, and I, I think that, I mean, I tried, trust me, I tried to quit drinking so many times and I could not do it. I needed help. And I, and, and it was that, that moment that I surrendered and quit thinking I could do it on my own. When I stopped, when I said, okay, damn it, I can't do this on my own. Yeah, I need help. I and need it help. was that moment that I was like, I think that that's when I allowed my, my soul to open and, and let God or the universe, whatever you call God, I call God, God. Um, but like when I, when I, when I said, okay, I surrender, I, yeah, I can't do this. I, I, and, and so that's just my personal opinion. And I don't mean I disagree, disagree. I think there are obviously some things you can figure out on your own, but still you may need to read a book about it. You may need to, to listen to an audio about it. You may need it, which means that somebody else is helping you. That's true. And it's also a matter of time. It's a matter of, of speed. Like, do you want to, do you want to take the next 10 years to, if ever, to get your mojo back. I mean, that that's right. fundamentally what I do is I help my clients get their mojo back. They yeah. lose it. They have lost it, whether it's cancer, whether it's divorce, whether it's, uh, whether it's the loss of a parent or of a child, they've yeah. lost it. The wind is out of their sails and they're saying yeah. like, what happened to me? I've lost myself. And so what I say to people is that this is true, I think, of both a therapist, definitely of both a therapist and a coach, is that we are, I, we, in, in this, these kind of helping professions are accelerators. So do you want to take the next 10 years working on this and doing it by yourself and gutting, getting through it? Or do you want to make rapid progress and figure things out and express those emotions and go through the stages of grief, et cetera. Do you want to be back on top, you know, starting a new business or publishing a book or um, being able to spend joyful time with your grand, with your grandkids instead of feeling like crap. Do you want to do that 10 years from now? Or do you want to do that next year? Right. Have you, have you written a book? Not yet. Not yet. It, it, I, I need to write a book. It, I'm going to write a book, not need to. I'm going to write a book, at least one. And it's a matter of prioritizing it and making time. Yeah. Somebody asked, that's why. Somebody asked in the comments if you've written a book. See, we could have sold some books for you today, Nikki. We could have sold some books. I also saw a question from someone um, who asked if I help people in divorce. And absolutely, yes. Um, divorce is my... Divorce is my super specialty because really because it's what I've gone through myself. Yeah. But um, I, so yes, I am uh, involved with an organization called Vesta, which is a divorce education and empowerment organization 
that was founded in Boston and is now spreading all over the country. And we hold events. Uh, we have we have geographic groups of professionals who are involved in in divorce, family law attorneys, realtors, financial advisors, etc. And we hold free events, free educational events about divorce and the, the the different kind of legal and emotional and financial aspects of divorce. And we educate people. And there's no pressure to actually hire us and work with us. Of course, that's always an option. But um, so in addition to my own practice, I also have a special interest in helping people to stage an epic comeback from from a divorce. So for someone that is um, going through a divorce, for example, um, and they feel, I mean, good Lord, I, 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 I know the feeling I'm familiar with it. Um, you feel judged, you feel lonely, you feel lost, you feel, um, like it's never, I'm never going to have another person love me. Or you don't like you question what is love. I mean, you go through all of that, and and so what what would be something that in the say the first thirty days someone could um, experience by by working with you? <laughs> by working with me in the first thirty days, the first thing I do with my clients is an assessment. It's not a, it's not like the MBTI. It's not a, it's not a, a multiple choice kind of a thing. It's a very deep hour long qualitative conversation. It's, it's a coaching session, but I call it an assessment because it's something that I've developed in the process of, of being in coaching school. And then later on working with my own clients and I call it superpower finding. You're absolutely right, Ken, that when you're going through a, a divorce, especially a high conflict divorce, you're questioning so many fundamental things about yourself. Am I a good spouse? Am I a good person? Am I a good parent? Right. And that one really hits you in the gut. And I'm a very strengths-based coach with a very strengths-based philosophy. And I want to know right up front what my client's superpowers are. And I define superpower, a superpower as something that you're naturally amazing at, very, very good at, good at, and it comes naturally to you. And number two, it's something that brings you joy. Ultimately, on an emotional level, to me, the epic comeback concept is it's everyone interpret, interprets it differently. My epic comeback is going to be different from Ken's, is going to be different from the, for every other person who's been on this podcast. But the epic comeback emotionally to me, what I'm trying to do is help my clients feel joy, tap into joy again, because they've lost it. That's what I mean by like mojo. So in the first 30 days, in the first day that I meet with my clients, I have this conversation with them where my superpower, my greatest superpower is that I see and detect and help elicit superpowers in other people very quickly, very, very quickly. I believe that every single person is absolutely incredible, amazing, awesome, and powerful. And it's in that conversation and, of course, subsequent conversations and sessions with my clients where I'm figuring out what makes you a rock star. And then from there, and I have to know that because after that, as continuing to work together in a coaching relationship, my clients are going to know 
they're going to know these are my superpowers. And these are the things that if I spend more of my time doing this, it's actually very simple. If I spend more of my time doing this, I am, I am going to make major, major strides in my life, in my self-esteem, in my sacred relationship with myself, in my professional life, in my social life. When you know what drives you, when you know what you're, what makes you intensely awesome, and you focus on doing more of that and keeping yourself in that state as much as possible, you know that you're serving yourself best, you're serving your, the, the universe best. And so in the first 30 days, what I'm doing with my clients is I'm creating a, I'm creating a non-judgmental, trusting place where my clients know that I believe in them 4,000%. I probably believe in them more, even more than they believe in themselves. Yeah. I am starting to build with them a, a sense that they are worthy of coming back. They've always been worthy. They have everything they need to reach those goals and to have and to and to reach those dreams and to get back not just on their feet but start to fly. So it's really in the first 30 days, it's, it's like it's this very rich and deep process of unearthing what brings me joy, what are my values, how have I maybe strayed from those values, how have I strayed from, from the fundamental things that I've always known about myself but forgot. So that's really where it begins. And, yeah. and, and, and but more kind of concretely, what I'm doing with my clients during you know the six months or three months or a year that they work with me is I'm I'm guiding them through the epic comeback process that I was telling you about before. And again, it looks different from every person for every person. And it doesn't happen sequentially necessarily. But what right. I do is I take a human being who's saying, okay, I just went through absolute hell. And I'm starting to get my sea legs back and I'm and I'm ready now to start taking action to get to, to get myself back right. and i say okay but i don't know where to start i feel really stuck i don't know where to start i've been beaten down i'm in this sort of you know almost like haze and i say okay here's the path here's the pathway and i show it to my clients and i describe it so this is a long answer to your question because there are a lot of things that are kind of happening simultaneously oh. but yeah. it's really it, you know coaching isn't something that can be well, you can sum up coaching quickly. Coaching is helping a person get from point A to point B. That's what yeah. it is. That's what it is. It's helping people reach their goals. But yeah. it sounds simple. It's it is simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy and fast and, you know. Well, and I think, you know, something that you said something you said about 5 or 10 minutes ago is you you used the word decide. That, that someone has has decided to make a change and 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 one of the 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 things that I've found working with with clients is is a lot of people don't especially when you're you, you've gone through something like a really traumatic divorce or, or whatever the trauma is they don't even like if you say what are your goals they don't have them they don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't know what, what their goal should be. Like they don't know. And I think that that's where working with somebody like you is, is, is 100% going to help 
set the the trajectory of the rest of their life. Absolutely. And I mean, can you do it too? We both coach mm -hmm. and and it's it's essential to this is to help my clients. They may not know what their goals are and that's I tell them that's absolutely fine. We're going to figure mm -hmm. that out. That's part of the the that's part of the expertise of a coach. Yeah. If they're educated and trained as a coach. <laughs> yeah. And many yeah. unfortunately many aren't. Unfortunately. Right. And yeah. we are in a profession where there is no barrier to entry. There's no, there's no guarantee whatsoever. Like when you go to a doctor and, and, and if, you're, if, you're, if you go to a licensed mental health professional, you know that they've had a certain level of education and licensing and having taken an exam. That's yeah. not true for coaching. You can nope. hang up a sh anyone in the world. A 12 year old can hang up a shingle and say that they're a coach and it wouldn't be, you know, maybe not yeah. a 12 year old, but like, you know, a 19 year old or whatever. And it would be legal and nobody would give them any problem. It's true. Um, yeah. But that's a whole other, that's a whole other yeah. topic. Yeah. yeah. The point, I mean, the point, the point here is that, that with coaching, it's, it's what I do with my clients is as, as any good coach does is help them develop that vision. Yeah. Help, help them develop the vision of, this, this is what my epic comeback looks like. I call it the epic vision. And it's a, it's a step in my methodology is we work together to create that epic vision of what does my life look like when I have come back and I am kicking ass again, or I'm kicking ass in a totally new way. I love it. And then we create the goals and the plan to reach the goals. And then we implement the plan together. Yep. And I am holding your hand. I'm there and I am, I'm a, cheer, I'm a cheerleader. And at the same time, I'm also, I'm also there for accountability. And I call my clients out when they're, you know, when, when they are, when they're forgetting, when they're forgetting their goals yeah. or when they're, I question them when they're, uh, you know, about to make a decision that is not even close to being in line with the goals that we, that we've already agreed on. Yeah. I love it. So the place for everybody to get a hold of you or follow you is theepiccomeback.com. What um, social media are you most active on? I'm active on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Nikki is N-I-K-K-I and Bruno, B-R-U-N-O. You can find me on Facebook. Um, I have a business page uh, called The Epic Comeback Global. Okay. And I also have um, just my my personal profile is Nikki Bruno, and then on uh, and then on Instagram I'm at the Epic Comeback. And we are live actually right now on Instagram as well, or on um, on LinkedIn as well. So oh, that's great, okay. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So um, Nikki, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on and taking the time to share your wisdom and experience and. Everybody on here, go follow Nikki, go to the epiccomeback.com. Is all your social media linked on the website as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everything's okay. all linked. And Ken, thank you. I am deeply grateful for the opportunity to be on your show. I'm, I'm grateful that you came on and thank you to Justin Breen for um, introducing us. Thank you, Justin. Yes. He's amazing. He's amazing. So stay with me if you would. I'm going to go ahead and end the live stream. So thank you to everyone who's been on here and um, and everyone who shared this out. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, if you didn't share, why? <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
Nikki, you're awesome. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks, Ken. We'll see you guys later.